Hi, and welcome to the premiere edition of Sidewalk Talk. I'm Steve Fortunato, founder of Shovel the Sidewalk. We are a marketing firm in Buffalo, New York. We're a small business, and we are made for small businesses. We work with our clients and help tell their stories so they can connect with their customers and their prospects and ultimately to help grow their business. We're all about storytelling and connecting the brands. One of our clients is uh, West New York Dermatology. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Nazareth, and I'm honored to have Doc as our first guest. Thank you so much, Thanks Steve. It's an honor to be here, too. Well, we appreciate having you. Your story, uh, our, our goal today is for people to understand not only um, why you are about your business and how you got your business to where it's at, which is an amazing success story, but also why. And what's your background? What, I mean, let's start with this. This, this has always interested me. I don't, I, did you grow up saying, boy, I want to be a dermatologist? Someday? So, good question. I, I, I grew up, you know, kind of knew I wanted the whole medical end of things. So by like fifth or sixth grade, I really wanted to be a doctor. But if you told me back then I was going to end up in derm, I would have had no idea about that. I didn't even know what dermatology was then. So I really didn't think about dermatology until I was getting my PhD in, in those years because there was a lot of immunology in dermatology. Uh, and I knew that was one of the rotations I wanted to do. And as you get through med school, you realize that as you do some of your primary care rotations and things like that, that so many of the concerns that people have start with their skin because it's, it's the most visible organ and it's the largest organ. So I did a dermatology rotation and just absolutely fell in love with it. And that's when I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. When you were in fourth or fifth grade thinking, oh, I really like, why, why did you say you want, why did you think, I wanted to be a sportscaster. Okay. Why did you say, I want to be a doctor. I just thought it was interesting because I really liked my pediatricians, obviously, growing up. Um, I didn't have any doctors in the family, but I always thought it was neat because you could really help people. And also, it was that lifelong learning because even then, that was, you know, when I was going through school, that was when the whole field of genetics and stuff was just coming to be. And I always thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a job where it's not just doing the same thing every day? But, you know, even what I'm doing today is different than what I was doing two years ago. Things advance so fast. And I think that that idea of being able to help people and stay on the cutting edge and keep learning was something that was really, really appealing. You're a real dummy, aren't you? I am. I'm a geek. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> so no background in the family in the medical field. What is the family background? So dad was a pharmacist um, some and medical. some medical yeah. there. He did have a, a PhD in pharmacology, um, but I honestly, and no offense to him, are pharmacists because I'm great friends with all of them. I thought that job was kind of boring. Uh, the idea of you know getting out the pills and everything like that didn't appeal as much as actually diagnosing and, and treating. So for me, that, that was always the leaning. Hmm. So what about mom? What's the background? Mom was an executive secretary, used to work for American Express, particularly when they lived in New York City. So no medical background for a mom, but very good organizational skills and typing skills from hmm. her. So here's what I, this is my takeaway. I'm a patient here, uh, disclaimer. So um, what, I've, what I've noticed and what I hear from other people is the first thing is your bedside manner. So when we, a lot of times problems with, a lot of doctors have a problem with bedside manner. I mean, they're just like, it's, it's not, I don't know if it's taught. Where does yours come from? Why? You have an incredible bedside manner like no other doctor. Thanks, I've ever Steve. Met. I appreciate no, that. I'm, I'm, it's, and I'm sure you get that comment from a lot of patients. I think it comes from just being yourself a lot of it. I, th I think a lot of it sometimes is, is doctors are a little bit too stiff or they're trying to really make sure the patients, you know, see them as the professional and want to be taken seriously. 
I mean, I think at the end of the day, my patients respect me because of what I can offer them and because they see me as a regular average dude. You know, I'm just, I'm geekier than most. I get that. But, you know, I'm, I'm just a normal guy. I'm not anything special. I don't walk on water. I don't love the separation that some doctors create of the, you know, I'm a physician that somehow intrinsically makes me a better human being than somebody else. I have some something different I do for a living that took a little bit more education. But um, other than that, I'm, I'm just like another average person. So I think that just being a normal person in front of patients, they buy into what you're telling them more. Uh, medicine used to be about doctors prescribing a medication or giving you a treatment plan, and you just kind of had to blindly follow it. And I think with the age of the internet and, and patients, you know, empowerment and things like that, it's, it's changed a lot, and I actually think that changes for the better because people should be empowered about their own health care. My goal is to partner with my patients to come up with a treatment plan that's right for them, and I want them to understand their medical condition because then it makes it more meaningful why they have to use that cream or why they need to take that pill or why they need that certain treatment I have at the spa or how that injection is going to help them rather than just, oh, I have this and I'm supposed to do this because that's what my doctor told me. Uh, I think there's a lot of power in education. And when patients understand their disease and how to treat it, they get better outcomes and they're more satisfied with their, their clinician and their whole experience of, of their healthcare in general. Um, and cost consciousness means a lot to that too. You know, uh, people pay a lot more for healthcare than they used to, and high deductible plans and things like that. You want to get your—I know it sounds cliche—but you want to get your bang for your buck. Your appointment should be a meaningful time with your physician. It shouldn't be all spent with me looking down at a computer and typing, and you know, barely looking up at my patient. And that's why I have a scribe in the room with me, so I can really focus on the patient. And, particularly for dermatology, it's such a visual field. If I'm not looking at you and really connecting with you. I'm not doing my job very well because I can't diagnose what I can't see. So just some of those fundamentals. I mean, I had some good mentors as I went through school too, but some of it's just adapting your own personality and style and just being a normal human being, taking an interest in your patients. You know, I want to know what happened to their kid. Did they make the soccer team? You know, I know that someone's son was going for a college interview. Um, I have a fairly good memory. So I, when I see my patients, I can remember those things. And it's fun practicing in the community I grew up in. So when I see people at Wegmans and things like that, I can ask those questions. And I think that makes my job more fun. And when a physician's having fun, I think it comes through in their bedside manner. It's about, as, a, as a marketer, it's what we talk about all the time, which makes our job so much easier in, in, in working for you and your team, in authenticity, right? right? So it's, you're, you're just trying to be you not somebody else. Correct. I, I just do my thing is what I like to say. And I go to work because I have fun every day. I look forward to going to work every morning. Uh, part of that is the culture I surround myself with. I have a great team of staff here. And that goes from my check-in and check-out people, the people who are answering the phones, all the way to my assistant who's with me in the room and my other PAs and nurse practitioners and our new physician too. Uh, it's really that culture that we try and create of being more welcoming. You're never going to see anybody in my office wearing a white coat because I think that creates separation. That creates that, you know, we're on this side of the line and you're on that side of the line. And I don't think that really has a place in medicine anymore. What color coats do they wear? Uh, hopefully none at this time of the year yet, but come winter, I don't mind as long as they keep them in the lockers after that. So now we're just in our scrubs or in our, you know, like my normal attire today. I'm usually in my khakis and a button down. Um, no ties. I just, I prefer people to be more comfortable. I see a lot of kids. I'm on the floor with kids in my exam rooms. I, I don't really feel it should be so stiff and proper like it used to be. What's the toughest part about your job? The toughest part is some of the tough cases we see. So some of the really bad rashes, some of the melanomas that 
I know if I could have gotten to that patient three, four, six months earlier that I could have saved them a lot of trouble or even potentially saved their life when now things are a lot harder for that patient. Um, that's frustrating because I know that we could have made a difference, more of a difference for that patient if I'd just gotten to them sooner. So I'm assuming the best part of your job is when you catch something early and you save someone's life? That's hugely rewarding, uh, particularly when the person didn't even come in for that. So, I mean, we've had people, one of the most examples that comes to mind more recently, we had somebody who came in for a torn earlobe. Um, cosmetic procedure, they wanted me to take a look at that to see if that was something I could repair, and we convinced them to do a skin check. And the patient was initially a little resistant, like, ah, do I really need to change into a gown today just to look at my ear? And they're like, you know, fine, you know, I've had some sun damage over the years, I've been tanning earlier in life, and we did a skin check, and we found an early melanoma on her, on her back. She lives alone, so it's not something she was going to see until it became symptomatic, at which point it could have been more advanced. And we caught it early, and we took it out, and she's doing great, and now she's very grateful that we did that. So those, for me, are, are very rewarding. But it doesn't have to be that drastic, like, oh my gosh, I saved a life. You know, you take a two-year-old who has really bad eczema where the kid is miserable, the parents aren't sleeping, they're getting a lot of infections because of that, and we treat them and start a regimen that clears their skin. That's life-altering. It's life-altering for the kid, but it's life-altering for the family, too. Um, so those things make me very happy. My, my, one of my children had eczema, so I know how important that is to be able to treat that. So it doesn't have to be earth-shattering. There's a lot of joy in my job just from doing some of the things I think that people think is mundane. You know, you, you successfully treat somebody's acne. That gives them a lot more confidence, you know, and they're just so much happier, particularly in those really formative teenage years. Um, besides the rashes, too, even some of the lesions we take out. You know, we've had people with a really painful cyst, and I know some people don't think cysts are glamorous, Obviously, a lot of people do, and I think it's a lot of fun personally. Um, but you know, being able to take that out really makes a difference in somebody's life. It doesn't have to be life changing, or you know, it didn't save their life, but it made their life so much better. But there is the, the life saving part of it, and that Absolutely. is true, and it's something you're passionate about because on the educational side of dermatology, you constantly preach get skin checks. When I was younger, we didn't know the things that we know now, and people. You know, Generation X, baby boomers, they're paying for it with skin cancer. You know, it wasn't only the fault of like the public in general, even dermatology to agree was at fault. We used to think that getting some sun was healthy, you know, so the whole baby oil and iodine thing was there for years, and now that's catching up with people, as you noted. So there's a spike in skin cancers in general in two ends of the population. So some of the, the younger women between 20 and 40 right now, there's been an 800% increase in melanoma in the last 20 years because of the advent of tanning beds mm. uh, and the whole laying out in the sun to try and get a tan in those younger populations in addition to the, the fake tanning beds. But the other population that's getting a lot of skin cancers is elderly people, and it's because they had sun damage earlier in life and now they're living longer um, thanks to the modern medicine that we have, and, and that's just their sun damage catching up with them. So I think vigilance in all groups is key. You know, I, I don't like when the you know, 30 year old ah, I'm fine, I haven't had that much sun, I, I don't need to come in for a skin check. Well, you know, 90% of skin cancers are explained by the sun, but that doesn't explain all of them. Like, we found the melanoma, you know, I think it was last month between somebody's toes. And the sun doesn't shine over there, mm -hmm. but they can still get it, but we caught it early and they're going to be just fine. So, you know, a skin check is such an easy thing. You change into a gown, it takes a few minutes, we're just scanning your skin with a light. It's not hard to do. Like, I always tell people it's really hard if you think you have a problem in your lung or in your abdomen. You know, you need x-rays, you need CTs. How do you see that spot? And if you see a spot there, it's hard for a doctor to determine, okay, is this something I need to biopsy or not? Because that's an invasive procedure. 
there's something on the skin it's so easy to treat or see you know even if you need a biopsy it's such a minor thing you're left with a tiny little brush burn that it's almost criminal that we don't make sure that everybody's getting those because it does save a lot of of trouble for patients down the road let's talk business so you started out with west new york dermatology you were a dermatologist somewhere else decided to start why did you decide to start your own you know, I, I had a, a vision for what I, I kind of wanted to create, um, and I didn't think that there was really a place in Buffalo that offered what I thought should be the way and what could be done, I think, for skin health. Um, wanted a more all-encompassing approach. Uh, you know, there's, there's practices that are more catered to one segment of dermatology, uh, be that cosmetics or, or surgery uh, or skin cancer even. I wanted to be the place that people, if they have a skin problem, they can come here. Um, whether you're a kid, whether you're older, whether you're middle-aged, whether you're male, female, whether it's a cosmetic concern, whether it's a rash, whether it's a skin cancer or a lesion, I wanted to be the place that you can go to. I, I didn't think you have to fragment your care like, oh, it's a rash this time, so I need to go to this place. Or, you know, and this time it's a mole, so I have to go to somebody else. Or, oh, I think I have a red spot that I want lasered. I don't like my freckles. I, want to, I have to go to a different place. I think it's nice to be able to have one place you can come to get your skin needs addressed. And beyond that, just being the one place, I think it's safer for patients too because we have all those records in the chart. So I know if I'm treating your acne with something and then you're thinking about a peel or a laser procedure, it's easier for us to do that because I know what's going to work better with the medical treatment that I have patients on. So I think that by kind of encompassing that vision and you know having the surgery done in the office, most of our surgeries we don't need to send to a surgery center or something like that. We can do it in the office, and that saves a lot of healthcare costs. You know, there's no need to pay that $400 facility fee to have that small cyst taken out on you when we can do it in the office with just the regular copay. Okay, so. You, you, you have dermatology office, and then you decide, I don't know if it was decided beforehand that you are going to eventually start Healthy Complexion Spa by Western New York Dermatology. We're on a campus now where we have derm office, the spa, and then we also have Mohs Surgery at Western New York Dermatology, beautiful new facility that just opened up uh, in, in the last few weeks. So you have these three facilities on one was on, on campus was that your vision at the beginning? No. Uh, I, I think that I wanted to have sort of everything here. I never envisioned it would grow this much. Obviously, in just five years, it still stuns me today when I pull in the parking lot in the morning to see just how big this all is. Um, but I think that a lot of it comes from the patients. You know, we're very patient-driven. Uh, we started off offering some cosmetic procedures, and, you know, we had a couple of rooms that we did that in. It was in a separate spa. And then patients wanted certain things or had certain concerns or were getting their procedures done somewhere else and were coming to us with, you know, complications or concerns of how come you don't do this because you're the skin expert or you know how to do this better. Why don't you do this? Uh, and I think we slowly built it from there, which was sort of the impetus to launch the spa. The Mohs Surgery Center came from uh, the other side of it, obviously the, the medical surgical side, in that we were having a lot of patients that needed Mohs surgery, and we were referring a lot of those cases out, which was difficult to coordinate in, in many situations, and patients wanted to come to the same place. They said, I don't want to have to drive to a different office, and you send records, and they have to send records back, and I have to wait. Why can't you do it here? Um, and I think that made a big difference to them to be able to offer it here, and the other issue we ran into was insurances. So certain other practices that we're doing, Mo's that we're referring to, don't take the same number of insurances that we do. And going back to my earlier comment that's about helping people, it also created some uncomfortable situations where one situation, I had two brothers, both had a basal cell on the face and both clearly needed Mo's surgery. 
Uh, one could get Mohs surgery because they had a very, very good insurance plan. The other one had a, a very, you know, not bad insurance, but a government-based insurance plan that not a lot of people accept. So he wasn't going to be able to get the same procedure. And, and as a physician, not being able to tell my patient, this is the standard of care, but you can't get it, uh, doesn't sit very well. So Dr. Rizzo and I, and you have known each other since uh, 2004, actually, when he did the MD-PhD program at, at UB like I did. I was a few years ahead of him. Uh, and we'd been talking. We'd been friends for a long time. So since he was finishing his Mohs surgery training at a top 10 program, actually, at the University of Michigan, intending to move home, it just seemed like a natural fit to bring him in. We both have MDs and PhDs from UB, both have a strong derm background and are board certified in dermatology. And then he has that extra training in Mohs surgery, which we kind of desperately needed and another good local kid. So it was really great that we kind of shared that same vision. So it was a natural fit for him, I think, to come on board. So I was going to ask you about Dr. Rizzo, but okay, so Rizzo's in, um, he does all those procedures. You do not do Mohs. Why don't you tell us what, just Break down Mo's for us. People think Mo's. Welcome to Mo's. Yeah, what are you talking about that? uh, yeah. That's that's kind of the the mystery here is what is Mo's surgery. Uh, Mo's was named after a doctor called Frederick Mo's, so it's M O H S. It's not the same as as the uh, Mexican restaurant, mm-hmm. and it's not an acronym for for any type of procedure. Um, basically, what Mo's is is they take a layer of skin out at a time. So this is really important for skin cancers on the head and neck, where you know every millimeter of skin counts. Because if you have something on your nose, for example, there's no loose skin on a nose to close. It's not like you can take an extra couple millimeters around it and just sew it up. There's really no loose skin there. So, you know, they, Dr. Rizzo can go in and take a layer out at a time. It then goes to the lab, which is on site in that new building. Uh, the histotechs prep that. So they embed that into paraffin. They slice that. They put it on slides, do a frozen section, stain it. And then Dr. Rizzo himself actually is trained to go into the lab and read the slide to see, are there any cancer cells there? So if there's cancer cells on the margin, It'll actually be marked off where that is. Is it at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock? He can then go in and take more tissue out at the site that's positive, but not anywhere else. So it's like a tissue-sparing cancer surgery. Once he knows he has clear margins, he's trained in reconstructive and plastic surgery and then can then do that closure. There are a few situations where these closures can actually get pretty big if it's a very large skin cancer. And we have great relationships with some of the plastic surgeons and oculoplastic surgeons that we work with. So we can coordinate those repairs for patients to make sure that everything is taken out accordingly and then repaired appropriately. But by far the most most repairs that occur are right after the cancer removal. So that patient can come in with their skin cancer and when they leave on their way out, they know for sure their cancer is gone because we have clear margins and that that pathology is done in real time. So uh, a very, very advanced technique. Um, And then, you know, the patient knows that if they get a flap or a graft or a more complicated closure, they don't have to worry and wait by their phone a week later and hope, oh my gosh, I hope my surgeon got clear margins because if they didn't, I got to go back for more surgery. Here, you know that as soon as it's done, it's, it's all clear. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's very cool technology. Uh, and we literally have multiple, multiple cases that have already been done there just in the first three weeks. All right. Let's get, let, so you mentioned Dr. Rizzo. He's from Buffalo. You brought him back home. You're from Western New York. What's your, your St. Joe's boy? Tell me about. Yeah, so I went to uh, St. Joe's for high school and then on to Canisius College for a biology degree um, and then went to UB for an MD and a PhD. So my PhD is actually in lung tumor immunology. 
but the immunology I did there was actually kind of interesting because it was looking at some of the co-stimulatory molecules and some of that research is actually now on medications that we use as immunotherapy even for melanoma. So uh, Opdivo and Keytruda, which are PD-1 inhibitors, I actually have some patients on uh, and I got to work on that back in 2002 and 2003 when I was in a lab at UB. That's pretty cool. So. Uh, all right, family, uh, Helen, kids. So my wife, Helen, is a pediatric anesthesiologist at Children's Hospital. She's also, a real dummy, too. Yeah, right? she yeah. also did that MD-PhD program <laughs> at UB. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got her PhD in microbiology and uh, had intended to actually become an infectious disease specialist. Mm-hmm. And as part of our med school rotations at UB, you do three weeks of anesthesia. And she just randomly got assigned to Children's Hospital for hers and came home her first day after working there and was like, wow, I really love this. I think I'm going to be a pediatric anesthesiologist. And lo and behold, now she is. Uh, we have two kids, so a uh, little uh, six-year-old boy and three-year-old girl, and they're, they're all local and loving life, too. My, my mom lives in the area, and so does her mom, so uh, that's quite helpful for child care, too. <laughs> Helen's from here? No, no, Helen's no. from uh, Newfane, okay. originally, and then she went to Newfane High School uh, and then Canisius College uh, for her. She has her degree in biochemistry, actually. So outside of um, a lot of things that I'll never comprehend in the medical field, <laughs> Uh, another thing I won't comprehend is is cars. You you kind of have a tad bit. Yeah, that's that's kind of a little bit of an addiction for me is is the the car thing. So uh, yeah, always have loved cars. Uh, my first word when I started talking was car. Uh, much to my dad's dismay, I think he was hoping for Dada, but uh, car was the first one. And my sons followed in my footsteps too because his first word was car as well too. So that was very pleasing for me to see, much to the chagrin of my wife. But uh, you literally sell cars though. You, yeah, you I've done. I've sold sold cars here. Uh, a lot of cars for for Northtown in particular, and also Town Automotive and things like that so i've definitely done car sales still do that did one for my employee the other day who car broke down wanted a new vehicle so i can just kind of go in and take care of that too so yeah love cars drive a lot of different cars own a number of of Mm -hmm. nice vehicles so uh, that's always been a, a pretty strong passion what is it why I don't know. I just like the the control. I think of driving. Uh, I've been able to do some, you know, driving academies, professional driving schools, and things like that. Uh, and the high speed. I think the the adrenaline's kind of fun from that, but obviously a little bit more safe than a motorcycle or something like bungee jumping or something like that. Uh, so a safe hobby, but uh, nonetheless a, a lot of fun. Kind of a rush. Um, I like the the power and the speed and things like that, but. Uh, just been one of those things that's always been there as a hobby all the way through. Yeah, but for you, I mean, you're extremely knowledgeable about automobiles. You know a lot. Yeah, I tell my patients, too, that, that I know a lot about cars and a lot about dermatology. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very good on those two fields. So, yeah, I, I love all the details on new cars. I, I think from the age of three years old when we were driving in the car, I could literally tell what every single car on the road was. And I can still do that even at nighttime based on the headlight signature and the wheels and things like that and knowing what trim is it is and um, what options it has and stuff like that so uh, again i still geek out over that stuff what's the future of the automotive industry is it in trouble i think the automotive industry is still strong it's just going to be more complicated because before it was just like you know what's the next latest and greatest mm-hmm. car now we've got two very different forces acting on the automotive industry the first is electrification and, and you know hybrid technologies and things like that i think there's going to be a push towards more clean fuel cars and and electric vehicles i think we're already seeing that it's not just tesla now. Uh, you've got the answer from the Germans coming. The new Porsche Taycan has just debuted Mercedes and BMW and, and uh, the Vo- 
Volkswagen Group have some new uh, electric vehicles coming. Obviously, on the lower end of things, you know, Chevrolet and stuff have some of their vehicles. Hyundai's introduced some. Uh, Ford intends to have a big push now, too, with some electric vehicles. So that's going to be one force. The other force is autonomous cars, right? And I think there's definitely a role for that because there's going to be some great safety with that because think about how many accidents are caused by distracted driving and people not paying attention, whereas cars won't make that mistake. Um, well, I did in Pittsburgh. That's Kill true. Them. That is true. <laughs> um, so that's why I think there needs to be some overrides to that. And the technology is not where it needs to be yet. Um, if you notice, too, all of these electric autonomous vehicles that they're using tend to be in nice areas like, you know, Arizona and Florida and stuff like that. We're not seeing that in Buffalo, right? Because how is an ele- autonomous vehicle going to be able to make those decisions on road conditions when you don't see the road, right? What do you do in whiteout conditions if it's a camera-based system? Yeah, there's radar, but it still can't see lane markers when, when there's whiteouts and snowy conditions. So I think that there's a ways to go with that. The growing pains we're going to see in the industry come from when you're sharing the road with autonomous cars and people driving their own cars. And that's going to be the hard part because we do subtle things. Like when you come to a four-way stop, for example, you kind of creep a little bit so you see if that person's going to go or not. And that, you don't think about that anymore. Like when the last time we went to a stop sign, it was just kind of a natural process that you did unless somebody blew the stop sign, which is Mm -hmm. totally different. But those little motions, machines can't replicate that very naturally. So if you have an autonomous car pulling up to a stop sign with, you know, somebody else who's driving a normal car, you know, those little signs that we give each other, is just not the same. Like, how do you wave an autonomous car to go? There's no driver in the car, right? So I think some of those things are, are going to take a little bit of working out. The calculations that they make, you know, like, how often do you think about it? Like, yeah, you'd swerve to, to hit the ball to avoid hitting the kid, right? But can an autonomous car think about that? Because they just see it as two objects. Um, so there's more AI going into this now and actually being able to make that decision of valuing, you know, okay, obviously I got to try and save the human life over, you know, hitting the animal or hitting the ball or something like that. Um, but I think that there's a ways to go with that. So it's a very tough time in the automotive industry because the costs are high to develop these technologies. So you see companies investing a lot of money in both electrification and autonomy, which has led to mergers or what they have is these collaboration agreements now on some of that technology that automakers have signed uh, to kind of defray some of that cost. So even though they're going to stay as independent automakers, they want to work together on some of these projects for electrification or even platform sharing. Are we going to see the Jetsons in our lifetime? I mean, there's, there's those cars right now that can fly. They're very cumbersome, incredibly expensive, too. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. As it is, it's hard enough with, with FAA control over airspace. Uh, drones has been a big thing with worrying about airspace with that. So I think the technology will be there. I just don't know how practical it's going to be in terms of being able to have people flying their own cars because how do you regulate that with airspace? Um, and how do you prevent... A- it's hard enough to prevent accidents right now in 2D. So when you add that 3D and 4D to it with you know uh, altitude in addition to just where you are on the map, that I think becomes a lot more challenging. So I think that's a ways off. I think we'll see autonomous cars long before we see flying cars. You know, obviously with the ride hailing services, I think that they may have, you know, helicopters like they do in New York already now. I think that that might become more popular, but I don't see us, you know, going to the dealership and picking up a, a flying car anytime soon. Uh, I think the dealership model remains strong. I know Tesla's trying to get away from that in general and just order your car online and have it delivered to you and avoid the whole dealership thing. 
Um, I think that there's some value to being able to simplify that because, you know, I think there's been too much with the automotive industry, like, like greasy used car salesman, like how many times you got to go to your manager and come back to me and haggle over this price or do I need the window stripping or the window etching or the wheel package or, you know, the undercoating and things like that. I think people get tired of that. So I think there's a role for simplifying some of that, but people still want to go to some place if they have a problem with their car and, and get it taken care of. And, you know, having somebody from, a center drive to your office is not always practical to do that. Um, so I, I think we'll see a mix of that. I don't think it's just going to be traditional dealer franchises. There'll probably be some stuff beyond that, or they're going to adapt and do more stuff online um, and by phone app probably too. But I don't think it's going to be as drastic as people have predicted. Like, you know, we're going to be in a Jetsons car and you're going to order a car from your phone. It's going to be in your parking lot by the time you're done with work. I don't see that changing that rapidly. So you're going to, you're going to have your own car show soon? That might be there yeah, someday. <laughs> you can talk about it. I'm done with questions. Do you have any questions for me? Uh, no, I just okay. I, I think it's been great working with, with Steve here. Um, you guys have done a lot for our business, and we really appreciate all you've done for us, too. Dr. Michael Nazareth, West New York Dermatology, thanks for being our first guest. Thanks for having me, Steve. Sidewalk Talk. want to make sure we thank our sponsor, Vandalay Industries. Without them, uh, we wouldn't be able to, uh, to do this, uh, this podcast. George and his team are great. They, they've helped us out a lot. Um, so you can check us out. Uh, where are we? What uh, channels are we on? Where are we? Anytime on our website. Yeah, but our, we're also out on. Uh, what, can you get us on iTunes and stuff like yeah. that? Or can you hear anywhere you can get a podcast? You can check out our podcast. So until next time, I'm Steve Fortunato, and thanks for listening and watching. If you're watching us on YouTube, to Sidewalk Talk.